nation of his imperial majesty, Bokosa I, the emperor of what was known then as the Central Africa Empire. The cost of the event was $25 million, or about one-third of the government's annual income. Following the uh, blare of trumpets and the roll of drums at 10.10 in the morning, the procession began with eight of Bacosa's 29 children down the royal uh, red carpet. Following uh, those children was John Bacosa II, his oldest son, an heir to the throne dressed in a white admiral's uniform, complete with a braid made of gold. Following him was Catherine, the, his, the favorite of Bacosa's nine wives. And she was wearing a gown costing $73,000, strewn with pearls she herself had hand-picked. Finally, the emperor arrived in a gold eagle imperial coach drawn by six Anglo-Norman horses. He emerged from the coach wearing a robe weighing 32 pounds, decorated with 785,000 pearls. He then marched up to his golden eagle throne, which cost $2.5 million, where he crowned himself emperor of the Central Africa Empire with a golden crown, on top of which sat an 80-carat diamond. Rather impressive, I would imagine. Um, An impressive coronation. Unfortunately, his reign was not nearly as impressive. It was brutal and lasted under two years before he was overthrown. And in, I think, Bacosa's reign, we we see something of the absurdity of man's longing to exalt himself, to be made much of. And in fact, as absurd as this display was just a handful of years ago, it's nothing compared to a man we're introduced to in the book of Esther named Xerxes. Today we begin, as I've already mentioned, our study of the book of Esther, and I'm sure that is leading to a great amount of cheers from your living rooms all around as we're delighted. We always like it when we start a new book. It's always exciting to explore God's word in fresh ways, and uh, this, of course, is a book, as you know, is of scattered people, a corrupt king, an oppressive system, a terrible decree, and an orphan girl. And it has all the makings, of course, of a wonderful, incredible story. You might summarize Esther this way. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful Jewish orphan girl who became queen of Persia and would go on to risk her life to rescue her people from certain destruction. But of course, if that's all we understand the book of Esther to be, we miss the main point of it, don't we? The book of Esther is not a, a book about Esther's courage or even Mordecai's cunning But ultimately, it is a story of God's providential reign, in particular when it seems like all hope is lost, when it seems like we are living in a day of trouble. And perhaps we we might describe our day in such terms, that this is indeed a day of trouble as we live in in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. I think the the latest figures I saw, some 40 Thousand Americans have now died to the coronavirus just in the last month or so as this pandemic uh, spreads around the world. Of course, uh, on top of the, the health crisis, we are now uh, and under enforced social distancing leading to a spike in, 
in depression and, and spousal abuse. And on top of that, we compound that with the economic collapse that we're facing. Uh, unemployment, we've heard, is at uh, Great Depression levels now. Retirements are crashing. Small businesses, which have taken literally lifetimes to establish are falling away in just a matter of weeks. And on, on top of that, uh, even as Christians, we uh, seems to be a growing mistrust towards many of those who lead us and guide us. As even uh, last week around this country where churches uh, wanted to gather together but remain in their cars to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord with their windows open. We, we're hearing stories of overzealous government officials monitoring these people who are worshiping the Lord Jesus, even ticketing some um, for gathering in their vehicles in celebration of the resurrection of the Lord. And, and even, even on top of all that, as we look to our government to lead us through this crisis, it seems they're far more interested, at least in my estimation, of uh, blaming the other party. And we, we, we look around, we think this, this is a day of trouble in which we live in. Of course, this is just the trouble from the last four weeks. And we have all the other trouble that we live in that's, that's, that's common to humanity. We, we of course, have uh, the, the, the trouble of poverty and injustice and uh, around the world starvation and environmental degradation. Uh, the, the, we, 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 we might say trouble is the common lot to the human race. Certainly common for us today. It would have been very common to the Jewish people in the 5th century B.C. living in Persia. Which of course is uh, the people that the book of Esther um, dedicates itself to. It might be helpful I think for us to uh, kind of place Esther in its uh, position in redemptive history. And so if I could just chart out just a little bit of biblical history for, for us for a moment, you might find this incredibly boring, I'm afraid. So this might be a good time to get a cup of coffee or something. It'll take me about five minutes as we remember that the, the Bible begins with God creating this world. It is a beautiful world, a glorious world. He puts humanity in it. And yet humanity doesn't find God compelling enough to follow, doesn't find his gifts good enough to win our allegiance, and instead declares war against God and, and rebellion against him. As a result, the, the world be, fell apart. The Bible calls that a curse. We went from creation to curse. As we read on the book of Genesis, we see things continue to get worse, and it leads into to abuse and violence and pride and false worship, and, and things get worse and worse and worse as humanity spreads across the world. And God declares that he's going to redeem humanity. He's going to fix this situation. He's going to do so by entering into a covenant with an old uh, polytheistic idolater who has a barren wife named Abraham. And he says to Abraham that through you and your descendants, I plan to redeem the world. And he passes that covenant on to Abraham's son Isaac and then on to his son Jacob, who is renamed Israel. He, in fact, would start the nation of Israel, a great nation that would soon find itself in bondage to the world's superpower of their day, Egypt. And yet God, out of, uh, out of great faithfulness to his covenant, redeems Israel from Egypt by his great power, and through the sacrifice of a Passover lamb. The people of Israel would hide under the blood of a substitutionary sacrifice, and God's holiness would pass over them, and they would escape his judgment. God would redeem them then out of that land and gather them there. Really, the first gathering, if you will, of God's people at Mount Sinai, there to worship. And God says to them, okay, now that you're my people, listen, I'm going to give you my law. 
and, and I want you, I've redeemed you, I've saved you, and now I want you to live like me. And he gave him a law. The law was wonderful and good. The law said things like, hey, you should honor your parents, and you shouldn't kill each other, and you shouldn't sleep with each other's spouses, and you should tell each other the truth, and you shouldn't worship false gods. It's a really good and beautiful law. But even out of his great grace, God says, even when you violate my law, I'm going to implement a, uh, a series of sacrifices. So when you rebel against me, you, you could come and make this sacrifice, and the punishment that would be rightly due to you would be handed off to a substitute. And God, on top of all that, says, by the way, I want to bring you into a land of promise flowing with milk and honey, and I am going to bless you um, beyond your imagination, where God's people will be living in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessings. And through this, God says, all the world will know me and will come to worship me as they watch you, as you witness to me. So how did Israel do? Well, they said, no, thank you. They said, no, I think we'd rather kill each other and lie to each other and worship false gods and dishonor our parents. That sounds better to us. And God, out of great long suffering and patience to them, says, turn back to me, turn back to me. Like a father warning his child, he says, he warns them with prophet after prophet after prophet. It's almost as if God was saying, please don't make me count to three. Right? One, two, two and a half, two and three quarters, two and seven eighths. And eventually, after hundred years, hundreds of years, God gets the three and in comes Babylon and destroys Judah as this, this uh, uh, implementation of God's discipline and takes them into exile, destroying Jerusalem and even the temple. And there the, the Jewish people will be taken into Babylon and eventually, just a, a generation or so later, the Persia would rise up. And the Persian king led by Cyrus, he would come and destroy Babylon. And now he, he has this kingdom and he has all these Jews living in his kingdom. And Cyrus says to them, uh, Jewish people, would you like to go back to your land? And would you like to rebuild your temple? And would you like it if I paid for it? And the Jews said, yeah, that sounds like a good deal to us. And so many, many left. But not all of them. Some stayed in Persia. And Esther is their story. It's a story of the Jews who did not go back in the first return, but rather remained in this land. Now, the Jewish people just absolutely adored the, the book of Esther. They have uh, historically loved this book. Christians, on the other hand, have really not known what to make of Esther. In fact, for the first 700 years of the church, there is not a single commentary on the book of Esther. As far as we know, the great Calvin never preached a single sermon from Esther. The great Protestant reformer Martin Luther himself said he was sad it was ever written. It seems like Christians uh, have treated the book of Esther like a man treats a cat. We just stay away, right? We just don't know what to do with it, so we just kind of stay away. It is, of course, a very difficult book to interpret. There is no uh, interpretive comments by a narrator. It's not even quoted. It's one of the few books not even quoted in the New Testament. In fact, one commentator I considered said, quote, it is probably not a good idea to preach through the book of Esther. So guess what we're going to do? That's right. We're, we're going to preach it. You're not here to stop me. And so uh, we're going to work our way through this book probably over the next 10 weeks. And I, and I want to do so because I think it's actually incredibly relevant for us. As we've, we've mentioned, we, we are living in a day of trouble and in many ways, it seems God is silent. I think that parallels the Jews' day in the 5th century B.C. I mean, they too have heard of a mighty God. 
They, they've grown up on stories of how, how, how God has, has worked miraculously, how he sent visions to Joseph and sent plagues on Egypt and set the, the waters of the Jordan apart and set the walls of Jericho tumbling down. They've heard these stories over and over again. And yet, all of them took place a long time ago. And I think even about last week, as we uh, in particular celebrated the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, it is, of course, the foundation of our faith and yet, if we're honest, we would say, well, that, that was, it's wonderful. We need to continue to celebrate it and remind ourselves of it. But it was a long time ago. And in many ways, it seems as if God is silent. And I wonder if we find ourselves in the, in the same boat as the Jews did in this day. It's almost as if God is hidden. In fact, that's not the only parallel between us and them. You see, the Jews living in Persia were a religious minority in a culture that had vastly different views on life. And I think that's, once again, where we find ourselves. It should be obvious to us by now in the year 2020 that we live in a post-Christian land and that to be a follower of Christ is to be a religious minority. There is, of course, in that situation, a great pressure upon us to assimilate a great pressure on us to go along with what the culture is doing. Many Christians and denominations are doing so. Embrace the changing morality of our day. Embrace uh, the, the cultural revolution that is taking place all around us. There is this pressure on us to just go along with the program. Perhaps you've heard the old proverb that said, the nail that doesn't stick out much is less likely to be hammered. If that's true, there's pressure for us not to stick out. And yet we must remain faithful to what God has called us to do. And so what do we do? How do we respond? Well, let me give you two responses as how we're supposed to live as a religious minority. In this culture, this country we love, and yet a country that it seems to us that um, is going a direction that we prefer it not to go. The first response, by way of just introducing the entire book of Esther to us, may I suggest to you that we trust in God's sovereignty. We must trust in God's sovereignty in this day, his invisible glory, his hidden providence. Esther is one of the two books in the entire Bible in which God is not mentioned. God does not appear. God does not speak. He sends no prophet. He performs no miracle. There is no priest. There is no sacrifice. There are no moral commands or precious covenants to cherish. God is nowhere to be found on the surface of Esther. And I believe that to be the very point of the book. The idea that when God is invisible, his plans are invincible. When we can't see him, God continues to work and we need to trust in him. Trust in his sovereignty. When you don't see him in your life and we don't see him in our country and we don't see him in our day, that does not mean that God is not working. It does not mean he is not guiding. It does not mean that he is not saving. And even in our life, though we may not see it, we must trust God is working for our good. That's what the book of Esther will teach us as we work our way through it. Maybe you've heard of, a, of an object lesson that, that's often used in, in youth ministry, where, where you, uh, you, the, you pull a teenager up in front of the group, and you hold out your keys in front of them, and you say to that teenager, these keys will always be in front of you. And then you ask the teenager, where are the keys? The teenager, of course, responds, they're in front of me. You say, how do you know? Well, I, I know because I can see them. 
And then you go and blindfold the teenager. And you jiggle the keys. And you ask him, where are the keys now? And he'll respond, they're in front of me. You ask, how do you know? He says, I could hear them. Well, you stop jingling the keys. And you say, okay, where are the keys now? And the teen will instinctively begin to reach out. And he'll lay a hold of them. And he'll say, they're in front of me. And you say, how do you know? He says, I can feel them. Well, then you just take a step back, holding the keys just out of arm's length and asking one last time, where are the keys now? And it's interesting because they'll, they'll reach, but they won't, won't find them. And quite often the teenager will say, I don't know. And then you remove the blindfold and say to him, where did I tell you the keys would always be? Of course, the answer is in front of me. And the point is obvious and I think powerful and useful for us even today to be reminded when we can't see God, when we can't hear God, when we can't feel God, we need to trust that he is with us, that he is guiding. I mean, what has he promised to us? That, that I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age, that I will never leave you nor forsake you. When we can't, can't see him, trust that he is there. We cannot base that trust upon our sight, our hearing, our feeling, but ultimately on God's faithfulness. See, that's the book of Esther. The unseen, unheard, unfelt God is working in every chapter. Even though he is invisible, his plans are invincible. In fact, one commentator suggests that the book of Esther, uh, quote, is the longest sustained meditation on the providence of God in the whole Bible. It is really just one long narrative illustration of Romans 8.28. We know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. Therefore, as we study this book, we should, be not, we should not be awed by the courage of Esther or the cunning of Mordecai, but rather the powerful control of God on high. So we must, first of all, trust God's sovereignty as we live as a religious minority in a vastly different culture. Secondly, I'm introducing the passage in front of us this morning, we should cherish true glory. Cherish true glory. You see, the world, and I so appreciate the passage that Pastor Josh read for us this morning from 1 John chapter 2. The world stands in opposition to the church, the opposition to the people of God, and does so in two ways. Uh, Sometimes it seeks to destroy us, as we, of course, know of our persecuted brothers and sisters around this world. But but our enemy would much rather assimilate us. He would much rather woo us to his side. We see this, of course, in the life of Jesus. The devil comes to our Lord uh, initially with temptations. Join my side. It's far easier, he says. When he can only not assimilate Jesus into his position, it's at that time he pins him to the cross. He seeks to destroy him. And see, our culture would much rather win us over. A world is constantly trying to win our loyalties and our allegiance and our loves and does so by tempting us with counterfeit glory. And so we must, as God's people, see through the scheme around us. We must embrace true glory and reject the counterfeit that is jingled in front of us. The counterfeit glory here in Esther 1 is displayed in the third year of the reign of a man named King Xerxes. You see, first of all, his counterfeit power. Counterfeit power. Note, verse 1, now in the days of Ahasuerus. Now that name is going to be repeated a lot, and it is quite a mouthful. And so if it's okay with you, and even if it's not, I'm going to shorten his name, if that's all right. You see there's actually a name in the middle of his name, 
And so we will just call him King Sue from this point on, okay? And so you got King Sue, Ahasuerus, his Persian name. We know him from history as, as Xerxes, which is his Greek name. But uh, we'll call him King Sue uh, for our time. Hopefully that will be helpful for, at least for me. Uh, now God, uh, I mentioned God never mentions his name in the book of Esther. King Sue is actually mentioned 190 times in 167 verses. Uh, this is, you're supposed to be impressed with this man. In fact, he is, the, he is the towering figure of his day. We actually know quite a bit, a lot, uh, quite a bit about him, not simply from the Bible, but from the father of modern history, a Greek man named Herodotus, who lived uh, shortly after uh, King Sue's life and wrote a great deal about him. For instance, Herodotus, though he doesn't describe him physically, tells us that King Sue was an extraordinarily attractive man. So most scholars assumed he was red and hairy. Um, we also know that, that uh, he reigned in the year 486 B.C., beginning at age 30. I tried to do it with a straight face, so I apologize for not. Started his reign at age 32 at 486 BC, taking the throne from his father Darius. There's actually a movie, modern movie made about uh, this man. I, I don't recommend you watching it, but uh, in the movie you'll f- discover how he is defeated by simply 300 Spartans. Um, the size of his kingdom is here listed uh, as well in verse 1. You notice we read on, it says, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. So his kingdom was from where modern-day Pakistan would be all the way to modern-day Sudan. It's a very big country. In fact, I think by the, the magic of the technology, we are going to put a map up for you on your televisions at home. I can't see it, but I assume it's going up uh, around this point. I hope it is, because I'm going to refer to it. And you see on that map, don't worry about the different colors. Everything that you see is colored there is part of the Persian Empire. That's part of King Su's uh, territory. Do you know what they called that in his day? They called that the world. That was where the vast majority of people lived. This was the civilized cultures, and he ruled it all, the majority of the people, under one man's reign. In fact, if you put the modern-day countries in the Persian Empire... Uh, you will put, uh, he will rule Egypt, Libya, Israel, Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sudan, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Greece, Bulgaria, Macedonia, Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, and Georgia. It's just a massive, massive territory. It was in the largest empire ever known up to that point. Well, you could probably remove the map now, guys. You see, millions of people from diverse cultures, languages, and religions, ethnicities, all swore allegiance to this king. In fact, uh, he would actually, in order to control such a vast empire, create the first postal system. Uh, And and this, of course, has nothing to do with our our passage, but it's just an interesting historical footnote. The first postal system was created by King Su uh, to to help govern uh, his empire. It wasn't how you ordered toilet paper from Amazon back then. It was how he sent out his decrees to all of his provinces. They even had a motto for the postal system. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Quote, neither snow nor rain nor gloom of night stays these valiant couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. Of course, that word for word is the uh, unofficial motto of the United States postal system. We stole that from Persia 
and good old King Sue. You notice, according to verse 2, where he's reigning. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital. Susa would actually be his winter capital, his winter palace. He is so rich he actually has a backup palace. And there he sits upon his throne. As we see in verse 2, he would always sit upon his throne. Even when he would go into battle, from what we understand, they would carry that throne in the battle where he would sit upon it and watch his uh, troops defeat their enemies. He wouldn't sit alone. He would be surrounded by his personal bodyguard, 10,000 men, which history calls the immortals. This man was the most powerful man on earth. No one rivaled him. In fact, I could only think of one. Of course, it is King Jesus. You see, Jesus, too, has a palace. It's not in Susa. It's in heaven. Jesus, too, has a throne at the right hand of God. Jesus, too, has a kingdom. He said it's going to start small like leaven, but it will work its way through the whole world. And so what is it that we read in the book of Revelation? Chapter 7, I believe it is. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation. From all tribes and all peoples and all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white with palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. How, how, how did he get such a kingdom? How did it expand so large? Well, it was not like King Sue through the end of a sword. It was not through oppressive domination, but by winning hearts through glad submission. In fact, there is one thing in all of Scripture that is called the power of God. Of course, we know that God does many things according to his power, but there's only one place in all the Bible that that something is referred to as the power of God. It's found in the book of Romans in chapter 1. You know what it is? It's the gospel. We read, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I would suggest to you, my Christian brothers and sisters, that more power went into saving you than took to rule the entire Persian Empire. As God himself became man, lived a perfect life, completely fulfilling the law of God, being the true Israelite, and then dying on the cross for our sins, being the true sacrifice, as our sins are paid for, and then three days later, victoriously rising from the dead. This is true power. And we ought to be in awe of it. And our hearts should not be won by the trinkets around us, but rather by him who wields the great and true power, our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, even reading this passage reminds me of a, a story that I, I've enjoyed. The great Louis XIV, the king of France, known as the Sun King, S-U-N, king, desired to be the greatest king France ever saw. In fact, when he died, he had orchestrated his funeral that would take place in Notre Dame, and there the entire sanctuary would be dark except for a single candle be sitting upon his casket. And and the, the imagery that he wanted to convey was that he was the one who brought light to France. And now that he is dead, all of France is darkened. Well, in front of all the nobility of Europe and all the military might who attended this funeral, one courageous man who was to preach that funeral sermon walked up to that casket and snuffed out the light and began his funeral sermon in pitch darkness saying these words, only God is great. Only God is great. And may that be our heart's cry as well. May we delight 
in that truth as well. May we see the greatness and the majesty of God before us. You put the greatest of, of, of man in front of us. They are simply a flickering candle and God is the sun. Let us therefore not be mesmerized by the power of those around us. That let us not even aspire after it. Rather, let us consider the greatness of our God in Christ Jesus and find our delight in it. Let us echo the song of heaven. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We see, secondly, counterfeit honor. Counterfeit honor. So what do you do if you have all power and you have exorbitant wealth? Do you help orphans and widows and deal with injustice? No. You throw a party, as you see in verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media, the nobles and governors of the provinces, were before him. This would be a very big party, as you can see. Um, some have speculated as many as 15,000 people would attend this party. Uh, military officers, counselors, rulers, governors, uh, just a massive party. I don't know what the biggest party you've ever been to has been. Maybe a wedding, a, a, a wedding anniversary. Could you imagine 15,000 people at a party? Could you imagine just the event coordination that takes, the, the housing and the security and the food and the drinks and the flower arrangements and the, the entertainment and, and the, the porta johns and all the rest? I mean, it's just been an incredible uh, feat in order to throw this party. Of course, all of it paid for by good old King Sue. So you thought your, wedding, your daughter's wedding was expensive. I mean, he's throwing a party for 15,000 people there at his expense. You say, that must have been a crazy night. And it would have been a crazy night, except it didn't last a night. It lasted for 180 nights, as you see in verse 4. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Six months of partying. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, it's just unimaginable to me. I mean, some, some of you cook Thanksgiving dinner for 16 people, and you, and you, and you sleep for three days afterwards, right? I mean, he's throwing a party for 15,000 people for, for six months. And some of you, I, I know you're, you're, you're feeling kind of isolated. You, you're looking at that and say, that sounds pretty good. Right? You know, in a lounger out there, um, by, you know, uh, by a reflecting pool, pool, drinking out of a coconut, and someone comes along and, and refills your food and drink, and you're saying, we should do that. Right? That's in the Bible. Let's do that. Right? When this pandemic's over, let's have this six-month party. Well, I'm afraid that's not why it's in the Scripture to induce us to do it. Rather, you see what this party is for? Well, according to verse 4, read carefully. While he showed the riches of his royal glory... And the splendor and the pomp of his greatness. He gathers everyone from his kingdom to spend six months so that they can toast the great King Sue, who sits upon his throne and receives their honor. Honor me, honor me, honor me, he says. See, it's not enough for him to be great. He demands that other people acknowledge his greatness as well. You ever around those people who um, like to talk about themselves? And, and they always move the conversation about their greatness and their accomplishments and uh, their exploits. Those people are a lot of fun, aren't they? And you, and, and you ever find the people that always have a topper? Like no matter what anybody says in the group, no matter what they've done, this person's done something better, gone someplace greater, and they, they love to share it. Right? Those people are, of course, difficult to be around, aren't they? 
And yet, as I even look at this man and think about these situations, I can't help but see a a reflection of my own heart, that I, too, want to position myself to receive honor. And I, too, want you to think highly of me. And I want other people to, to praise me. And I think if we're honest, we all have that temptation in us, that, that we're guilty. And we might do this through uh, Facebook, and, and I, I receive honor by the number of, of thumbs up I get. Or we might do it through live stream preaching, and I receive honor for the number of views I get. And we long for that. We're just a reflection. See, we, can't, we don't rule an empire. We can't throw a six-month party. But we still are tempted for others to honor us. And my friends, we need to fight against that temptation. Even as Josh prayed for us this morning, we need to fight against the pride that's in our hearts. Is there not a better place for find satisfaction, not in what you have done, but what Christ has done for you? Will you not find greater joy rather than having people praise you, but rather than po- rather pointing people to praise our Lord Jesus Christ? See, how, how do we fight this temptation? I appreciate what one commentator said. He said, considering God's renown, right? thinking about God, reading his word, praying to him, considering God's renown recalibrates my heart and my mind and helps me perceive once again my proper place in this world. Consider this. Ahasuerus threw a party for 180 days to celebrate his glory. But from the moment God spoke into existence the heaven and the earth, all creation has never ceased declaring his. May we be among them. May we declare worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You see, the third counterfeit that we see paraded before us is counterfeit wealth. So you have a party for 180 days um, in honor of King Su. Uh, you know, what, 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 what do you do after that? What did he do after? Well, he, he did what everybody would do. You throw another party, right, as you see according to verse 5. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, feasts lasting seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And now he invites everyone to this party, common folk like you and I. There's a national holiday in Persia, a week-long party at my palace. I don't know, you ever walk through a palace, maybe in, go someplace in Europe, walk through some old building where some ruler rules or lives, and you see the bedroom, you go, ooh, there's the bedroom, and ooh, there's the dining room, and wow, look in the foyer, and all the rest, and you're all in awe and think this is amazing. Well, King Sue brings everybody over to his palace. Check out my palace. L- look at where I live. And in fact, we, we see in particular that this party, according to verse 5, took place in his garden. I don't know if you like gardens. Persians love gardens. In fact, the uh, English word paradise comes from the Persian word garden. They were known for their gardens, known for their flowers. Lilac and tulip are Persian words. In fact, the word tulip and turban come from the same Persian word. And you can kind of imagine a brightly colored turban bobbing on someone's head. Kind of looks like a tulip. And that's uh, kind of, they were into the, the gorgeous gardens that they had. In fact, one pastor explains, uh, imagine a magnificent garden where acres of grounds featured stone channels for running water, where flowers and trees were planted in beautiful and creative patterns, where reflecting ponds added all the more to the beauty of the gardens that framed the king's palace. 
This was the paradise of King Ahasuerus. Of course, we don't really have to imagine we're told as much. Do you see in verse 6? There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Purple in this day, you may know, was exceedingly rare and expensive. It would be worn only by the most affluent of individuals. Today we have this, this growing practice, it seems. If you're really rich, you, you put the label uh, on the outside, right, on your handbag or whatever, and people look at uh, that and say, wow, they could afford that. They must be rich. Well, they didn't, put, they didn't have labels back then. They put purple. They get a little splash of purple on a garment, and then someone look at you and say, wow, that person is, is really, really rich. Well, the king didn't wear purple. His curtains did, right, in his palace. And what does he hang his curtains on? But silver curtain rods. They got all the silver lying around. What are we going to do with it? I guess we'll make good curtain rods. And so they have purple curtains on, on, on silver uh, curtain rods. And they have couches made of gold. I mean, could you imagine walking up to a couch made of gold? I mean, that's nice. Yeah, it's gold. The whole thing is gold. I, I think I'd sit on something else, but it'd be pretty impressive to have a couch made of gold. And, and you got mother of pearl and precious stones. You got pavements made of porphyry. I mean, uh, uh, this is they put jewels in the floor. Like, they take stuff that you and I would lock away in a safe if we have it, and for them, that's what they sit on, and that's what they walk on. And of course, it all is meant to show his extravagant wealth. In fact, consider the stemware, if you'd like, verse 7. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kind, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Can you imagine you know, coming and, and a servant saying, welcome to the king's party. Here's your golden vessel. You think, what's that for? You say, it's drinking, of course. You use the golden vessel to drink. I mean, you have gold cups in your cabinet? Uh, probably not, I imagine. In fact, when Alexander the Great would conquer Susa about 200 years later, he would find more than 1,000 tons of gold bullion just lying around. Just exceeding, he would be amazed at it. It's just exceedingly wealthy. And we, we're supposed to read this and be a, a, amazed as well and drawn to this, right? This is, this is what we're told to live for. Maybe not the gold couches. Um, and I don't care for purple all that much, but we're supposed to long for things, aren't we? We're supposed to live for this. We're supposed to live for a, a six-month vacation where we just lounge around in, in our gardens. This is the things we're to give our lives to. Man, I just can't wait to retire so I could lounge in a garden for months and months and months. Or if, if not that, I, I, need the, I need the new car or the new gadget or the new TV or the new backpacking tent or whatever it might be. We're told this, give your life for this, go after this. And the Bible tells us we need to see this. It's a counterfeit. It will not provide the satisfaction that you desire. You think this is going to quench my thirst, and it will quench your thirst as much as a mouthful of sand. It's a mirage. It was the the great uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the Welsh preacher who was previously a Welsh doctor and served the British elite in the 1920s as a medical doctor, would say, it has been my lot to be able to study a large number of wealthy men at close quarters. The conclusion at which I have arrived concerning them has been that they are intensely miserable people. Their misery being exceeded only by those who worship wealth and have it not. 
I wonder how, how much of all of King Sue's wealth does he still have possession of? Of course, none of it. We might even say, what shall it profit a man if he can throw a six-month party and have couches of gold and yet lose his own soul? It's a counterfeit, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Why then do we spend so much of our, our time trying to get it? Why do we give so much of our heart to it? And please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy God's gifts. God gives us wonderful gifts. I, I like gardens. I like a feast. And we should enjoy it and receive it with thankful hearts, but we should only enjoy the things God gives insofar as it directs our heart's attention ultimately to him and to the incalculable riches that we have in Christ. Worthy is our, the lamb who was slain, we're told in Scripture. Worthy is the lamb to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. No matter, no matter the flaunted trinkets before us, no matter the cups and the curtains and the couches, they can't compare to the worth that we have in Christ, the one we have in Jesus. May he win our hearts and not the things of the world. Lastly, consider the counterfeit authority. So we, we, we move now in the story from curtains to cups, from drapes to drinks, and we learn that there was a law governing drinking, as you see in verse 8. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man had desired. The typical protocol in Persia at this time, like many kingdoms, was when the king drank, you drank. When the king didn't drink, you didn't drink. And as much as the king drank, then you just kept up with the king. So at this party, uh, the king gives a decree saying you're free to drink as much as you want, as little as you want, and whenever you want. And I don't, I don't know if it's, that strikes you the same way it strikes me. It just seems a little bit odd, doesn't it? That seems like a bizarre law that needs to be passed, a royal decree on how to drink at a party. It seems quite a bit of micromanaging is going on in Persia, that he needs to regulate the smallest details of life. And I would suggest to you this is actually not the sign of real authority. It's a sign of the opposite. It's a sign of weakness. For instance, when the European Commission passed Regulation 2257-94, which requires bananas must be, and I quote them, free from abnormal curvature of the finger and be a minimum of length of 14 centimeters, and on it goes about the weight and the, and the color of the banana, we don't, we don't read a regulation like that, and we don't come away impressed with the authority of the European Commission. Wow, those guys are really powerful people. No, we think they're a waste of time. And I get that feeling from this king. You have to pass laws on how to enjoy yourself at your party. That's not impressive. I don't think it's meant to be. I think it's meant to be ridiculous. You see, he wants to be adored by his subjects, feared by his enemies, obeyed by everyone. He wants total control. I would suggest to you that true authority is not in the ability to make a law, but it is in the ability to compel the heart to long to want to follow it. Anyone can pass a law. Any authority can pass a law. But few can actually work within our hearts that we, we want to obey. I only know one that can do this. It should be no surprise to you by this point. It is, of course, King Jesus. And Jesus just doesn't give us commands, though he does. He writes them on our hearts. He changes us from within. He takes out the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh that longs for obedience. The Bible calls us being born again. 
I remember my pre-Christian days, I, I, I knew God's law. I just had no uh, desire to follow whatsoever. I found it very distasteful, awful. To, there's no compulsion in me to follow God and do what God uh, called for me to do. And yet God caused me to be born again, and I trust you as well. And all of a sudden, there's this longing desire. I want to follow. It's beautiful and it's glorious. And it is good. You see, being a Christian is not simply being religious. It's not simply holding to a set of theological beliefs. It's not simply walking an aisle or receiving baptism. Of course, it involves those things. But to be a Christian is to cry out in desperation, I need to be changed. I need to be helped. Please, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, and change me from the the man who I am, from the woman who I am, to the man that you long for me to be. And God comes within us through his spirit and begins to transform us. He begins to, as scripture says, set us free, begins to to change our hearts. And the commands of God, which at one time seemed to be such a burden, are, as one pastor put it, like the beckoning of a beautiful spring day and the aroma of a flower-filled garden. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You see, King Sue's a counterfeit. King Jesus has genuine glory. I mean, this man is portrayed as as one of extravagant wealth, unlimited power, unrivaled authority. He's the most powerful man, the most towering man in all of human history in his day. Archaeologists, in fact, have uncovered an inscription they found in, in the buried ruins of Susa saying, quote, I am Xerxes the great king, the only king, the king of all countries who speak all kinds of languages, the king of this entire far-reaching earth. Right? He was impressive. And yet it was all a mirage. I mean, after all, where do they find that inscription of his greatness but buried under the sands of extreme western Iran? Lost to time, and man, his glory was a counterfeit. In fact, I'm reminded of, of, of that great movie, The Gladiator, when, when Maximus is in battle with Caesar there in the arena and, and reveals his identity and says to this man who has so severely ruined his life, the time for honoring yourself will soon be at an end. That would be a good line for King Ahasuerus. This man who flaunts his power and his possessions is no match for our God. There is no comparison whatsoever. For God, what does he say of himself in Isaiah? Haven't you heard, he asked. Don't you understand, he asked. God sits above the circle of the earth. The people below him seem like grasshoppers to him. He judges the great people of the world and brings them to nothing. They hardly get started, barely taking root, when he blows on them and they wither. To whom will you compare me, God asks. Who is my equal? Asks the Holy One. Who is his equal? Well, if you lived in 5th century BC, the the man you would put up to go against God would be King Xerxes. He was, after all, the son of Darius. And yet Jesus Christ was the son of God. Xerxes had a throne in Susa. Jesus has a throne in heaven. Xerxes was the most powerful man on earth. Jesus made the earth. Xerxes ruled 127 provinces. Jesus was told by God, ask for me, for, uh, ask of me the nations and I will give them to you as your inheritance. The end of the earth, your possession. Xerxes spent his life being served. Jesus spent his life serving others. 
Xerxes conquered his enemies by the millions. Jesus died for his enemies, saving millions. Xerxes' kingdom had subjects from many nations, but Jesus' kingdom has joyful worshipers from every nation. Xerxes threw a feast for prominent servants for 180 days. Jesus will throw a feast for pardoned sinners that will continue forever. Xerxes' kingdom, as we've seen, has come to an end, but Jesus' kingdom knows no end. My brothers and sisters in Christ understand this, that above Xerxes and everyone who flaunts their authority is a greater king, is the true king. He is better than any king and every king. He is the king of kings. In fact, unlike this man, King Jesus actually got off his throne and didn't invite us simply to come and sit around him, but rather came and dwelt among us, that he who had incalculable riches became poor for our sake. He who deserved all honor became dishonored for our sake. He who had all power chose to use none of it for our sake. What a king we have in Jesus. My question is, does he have your heart? Does he have your mind? Does he have your affection? Are we so besieged by the trinkets of this world and the baubles that it parades before us? We chase after this and chase after that and chase after this. All the while, we belong to the greatest of kings. This world wants to assimilate us. It wants to to bring us into its realm. My brothers and sisters, as we live in this land of increasing change, let us stand firm. And let us do so by continually considering who our God is and what we have in him, what he has done for us, what he is doing, and what he one day will do for us. Simply do not be sieged by this world, but be active in considering our Lord. What is it that we sometimes sing? This is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let heavens ring. God reigns. Let earth be glad. Our father in heaven, we rejoice. Even as we live in a, in a, a difficult day, a challenging time, that you are on your throne and you have no rival. You alone reign and rule from heaven. And so will you help us, even though we cannot see it, will you help us to trust in it and help us even to move beyond and to cherish these truths? Will you give us the eyes that we might gaze upon our Lord, that we might delight in him? And will you help us to flee from the temptations of this world the counterfeits that it often compels for us to embrace that we might become more like it. That we would be, as you have called us to be, a holy people. People set apart for you. A people living for the fame of our great King. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.